Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences is a proud sponsor of this I Believe podcast. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Thank you guys for joining us on our live webinar. So for those of you who are new to this idea of doing webinars, um, our goal this year is to do at least four webinars with medical professionals um, who can give us some updates to new research or who can uh, explain something kind of more specific that is questioned or just has a lot of um I guess just a lot of interest in the ocular melanoma patient community. So as you guys have ideas or doctors who you think might be uh, great to have on a quarterly webinar, we would love to have input. But this is our first year, first quarter webinar, and this is Dr. Lauren Dalvin. And she is here with us from the Mayo Clinic in, is it Minnesota or Ohio? Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, I was Ohio originally, though. Well, there's a Mayo Clinic in Phoenix. And so I was like, oh dear, hold on. Um, but she is here with us to just explain about uveal melanoma and what she calls the living library for uveal melanoma. And I'm so excited to have her with us. Before we get started, just super brief announcements. And before I introduce her fully, we have the Steps for Sight going right now. So if you have not joined the Steps for Sight movement, please don't feel like it's too late. You're not too late to join us and to be a part of the Steps movement. This is our second year of doing the Steps for Sight for ocular melanoma. And just to kind of fill you guys in, last year we raised over $60,000 in the month of January, 2022. Um, that money then was matched by the Melanoma Research Alliance and they basically um, doubled our impact, you know, up to the $50,000 mark. So we have over $100,000 from last year that is then going to go toward a research project. Um, and hopefully that will be announced in April, 2023. So this year, and that's been, you know, how to call out for abstracts. It goes through this rigorous process of just trying to figure out what's the best place for this research project to um, focus and to make sure that it's, you know, very uh, patient focused and action driven and all of those things. So we're excited to announce that, but this year we're we're doing the same thing. And the Melanoma Research Alliance actually partnered with us. They're helping us share about this. So the more that you guys can share, the more that you guys can get your friends and family involved in the community, uh, get your doctors involved, your ocular oncologist team, um, get everybody stepping for ocular melanoma. It's really simple. All you have to do is just use a watch of some kind, or you can even just use your phone, but it's been a lot of fun. And just so you guys have an update, there's a, I feel, I feel like there's almost 11 million plus steps so far from everyone who's registered. I think we have almost 250 to 300 people registered somewhere in that range. And we've already raised over $21,000. Um, so we're doing great. Let's keep it going. The momentum has started. So let's just get the ball rolling down the hill faster. Um, but anyway, so that's all I've got for announcements. Thank you guys again for being here. Uh, as we get going, let me just briefly introduce Dr. Dalvin. So Dr. Lauren A. Dalvin is a full-time ocular oncologist and associate professor of ophthalmology with a joint appointment in medical oncology at Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. And like I said before, she's here to talk to us about the living library for uveal melanoma, and she's got a presentation. So I'm going to kind of turn it over to her and just let her let her loose. 
Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to share my screen with everyone here. Um, and thank you for joining us. I've heard so many fantastic patient stories and you guys inspire me so much. I just wanted to give you a little bit of my own background and my story as to how I got here and why I'm doing what I'm doing today. So I'm originally from Northeast Ohio and I did a six year combined BSMD program. And I went into this even coming out of high school knowing that I wanted to be an ophthalmologist. I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be a vitreoretinal surgeon. And I, I really never considered going any other way in my career. I remember when I interviewed for residency and I interviewed at Mayo Clinic actually on my birthday and I walked into this big hospital and this enormous atrium and I, I just had this feeling of this is where I'm meant to be and I can't explain it to you. Um, but I remember interviewing with the person who was residency program director at that time and she said, you know, I just couldn't stop looking at you during the tour. You wouldn't stop smiling. Um, and I just had this feeling that this is where I belonged. And, and to this day, you know, I'm the only one in my residency class um, that year who hadn't done in a way or audition rotation there. And I, I swear I matched at Mayo because I smiled a lot, but it was because I had such a strong feeling that that was where I belonged. And when I got there, my mentor from Ohio said, you have to work with Dr. Jose Polito and um, knowing that he was a retina specialist and that's what I wanted to do. And I had no idea at that time that ocular oncology was even a subspecialty. I hadn't really thought about the concept of treating eye cancer for a living, um, but Jose Polito happened to also treat eye tumors. And really through working with him, I discovered that I loved treating these rare things that no one else felt comfortable with because an ophthalmologist could go their whole career and maybe only see this once or twice. And I remember the day when I knew that this is what I was going to do with the rest of my life. I was in clinic um, as a resident with Jose Polito, and we were seeing this young woman who was just about to be a first time mother. And we had to tell her that she had cancer in her eye. And it was devastating and she was well-educated. She sort of saw it coming and she knew potentially the implications of this, that it wasn't just the eye, but that this is a cancer that can spread and sometimes it can be deadly. And she was devastated. And I remember my mentor saying to her, you know, 15 years from now, you're going to be seeing Dr. Dalvin and she's going to tell you that you're cancer free. And I, I tear up actually when I talk about this, um, but I knew at that moment, I had to be there 15 years from now, and I had to tell her that she was cancer-free. So that's really the moment that I knew, and that was the first time that I thought maybe, you know, I could be this person, and, and it just so happened that my mentor was thinking about retiring at the time, and after that, it sort of all happened very quickly. He said one day to me, do you want me to call Carol Shields and see if you can train with her? And and I said, yes. And within months, you know, I signed a contract to go train at Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia. And then I signed a contract saying that when I was done, I was going to come back and take over my mentor's practice. So I feel so grateful to be in the position that I'm in today. And really, my career is about getting to have that conversation, hopefully someday with all of my patients, far more than I get to today, that it's been 15 years and you're cancer free. So I wanted to just take you through 
clinically a little bit of how I approach things, what I think about every day, and then how this leads up to this living library that we have now created for uveal melanoma. So um, I don't have any commercial conflicts of interest, but I do receive some grant support for my laboratory. And today I'm going to take you through a review of some clinical features of uveal melanoma and talk to you about how I as an ocular oncologist think about this disease, understand how we um, approach prognostication or prediction of the risk of metastasis in our patients, and then learn how laboratory research, I hope, is going to contribute ultimately to personalized uveal melanoma treatment and hopefully a cure. So let's start with going through some clinical features. So uveal melanoma is the most common intraocular cancer in adults, and even though it's very common, in my world, it's quite rare in the real world, about five to six per million patients will develop this disease. And most patients who are meeting me for the first time have never even considered that you could get cancer in your eye. Uveal melanoma affects these pigmented tissues in the eye called the uvea. So it can happen in a couple of different places. The iris is that front colored part of your eye. That's that blue, green, hazel, brown that you can see in the mirror. The ciliary body is this place that creates fluid that fills the front of the eye. And that we actually can't even see on a regular eye exam. We can only see it with special tests like ultrasound. And the choroid, which lives way in the back of the eye underneath the retina, and that's probably the most common place that we see these. Even though this is coming from a pigmented tissue, most uveal melanoma are pigmented, but some of them are totally amelanotic. So this would be a more typical pigmented tumor, but you can get a tumor that's really quite yellow. And sometimes that can lead to diagnostic dilemmas. Other things about these tumors, they can have different shapes to them. So most commonly we're dealing with dome shaped tumors. This is pretty classic, but when these grow, they can break through something called Brooks membrane, which sort of forms like an elastic waist belt and can give it this little mushroom shape. And sometimes rarely you can have a really low lying diffuse uveal melanoma that's very broad, but not very tall. Ciliary body, remember we talked about, we can't actually see it on our exam. So this is the place where melanoma tends to hide until it gets large. And so here, this is that special ultrasound test that I talked about. This is actually the cornea, the clear window front of your eye. And then this little scrunched up guy is your iris, the colored part of your eye. And the ciliary body is normally about this size. So you can see there's a large mass in the ciliary body here. But even with this size of a mass, this might not be seen on an eye exam until it does something like grow up into the front of the eye. And then we can see it crawling up onto the iris surface in the front, or it gets really, really big so that somebody can see it on a dilated eye exam. Here we have what sometimes is a really good clue to these ciliary body tumors, this we call a sentinel vessel, this really squiggly dilated blood vessel here. And sometimes that gives us a clue that we need to do that special ultrasound test because there might be an underlying mass. Most of these tumors on ultrasound have this quality of low internal reflectivity or hollowness. So they look dark black inside like this as opposed to more benign things, we typically think of benign nevus as being more dense or white inside. And we can see things on dye tests. We can see something special called double circulation sign, which means that we can see the blood flowing through the retinal vessels. But then also, if you look on this special type of dye called endocyanin green, you can see these deeper blood vessels that are actually within the tumor itself. 
Most of these melanomas come from a nevus or a freckle in the eye. And nevus or freckle in the eye is actually very common. About one in 10 people could have a nevus or a freckle in their eye. And we tend to watch these because even really low risk freckles I've seen grow into melanoma. So you never know, you can predict probability, but you never know for sure, which is going to be a problem. I look at six different risk factors. Anytime I'm looking at a nevus to predict how likely it might be to grow. This one here has a few different risk factors. So here we can see subretinal fluid. You can see this little tiny gap of dark space here and here. And so when we're leaking subretinal fluid, that makes us a little more concerned. This also has something called orange pigment. You can actually see it over here on the color photo. It looks orange in color over a pigmented spot. And then it lights up bright white on this autofluorescence test. And this was a little bit hollow inside too, even though it was a very flat spot. And so this is something that over time ended up growing to melanoma and saw me to need treatment. So this is why we watch these things, especially things that have risky features to them. And as you probably know, even though we worry about the eye and we worry about what happens with our vision, one of the biggest, most important things in this disease is what happens with the rest of the body. So depending on where these are, if these are close to the optic nerve, and I'm worried that it might be crawling out of the eye, sometimes I'll get MRI brain and orbits. And we always, always, always image the lungs and the liver because these are the places that eye melanoma likes to spread. So here's an example of something that was sitting really close to the optic nerve. So I got an MRI to make sure, unfortunately, this was not crawling back into the optic nerve, but you wanna do that before you treat something, especially if you're trying to save the eye, you don't wanna to try to save an eye when there's tumor already escaping outside of the eye. To treat these things, most often these days we're using radiation and really we've been using radiation since the eighties. And the most common thing that I do in my practice is called a plaque. And probably many of you are familiar or have been treated with this. And these are little gold discs that have radioactive iodine seeds in them. And we have all sorts of different shapes and sizes so that we can cover different sizes of tumor. And we have these special ones that have little notches or even slots that can fit around the optic nerve. And we have things that are very close to the disc, just like I showed you. Other types of radiation we can do plat, we can do plaque, but we can do proton or gamma knife radiation. When we do that as opposed to our plaque, which, which we're going to suture our radiation device directly on the eye and then remove that a few days later with proton or gamma, I'm going to use these special things called fiducial markers. And that's actually going to mark out the edges of the tumor on the eye. And you can see those markers on an MRI scan. So you can see it here in relation to the tumor here. And then our radiation oncologists who deliver proton or gamma can map out exactly where they need to deliver the field of radiation. Much less often we use things like laser. Historically, laser was used more commonly, but we now know that using laser alone comes with a pretty high risk of cancer coming back in the eye. We also used to do things like surgery, actually excising these tumors. A lot of locations where these occur, that surgery is really, really high risk, uh, but some small things in the front of the eye, like on the iris can be amenable to surgical excision. And nowadays we're even getting into clinical trials where we're using things like nanoparticles and trying to combine them with laser to kill small tumors in the eye. And really the interest 
in moving into some of these other treatment modalities of nanoparticles combined with lasers because of the treatment side effects that come with radiation. And I see these every day, all the time in my practice. So we can get things like swelling in the retina, we can get bleeding in the retina, and we can get damage to the optic nerve that can cause dulling of color vision and cause blurring of vision and just general diffuse vision loss. And we can treat some of these with injections of medicine into the eye, but radiation side effects tend to ramp up over many, many, many years. So some patients are able to keep good vision, but a lot of patients lose a lot of vision in the eye we have to treat. So this is a reason locally in the eye that we really would like to have better medical treatments. Other things we know with radiation, we're going to get a cataract. If we get really bad radiation side effects, we can even get new blood vessels growing into the front of the eye that can cause high pressure and pain. And because all of these techniques are working around eye muscles to place a plaque or place markers, sometimes we can get double vision too. For large tumors, Unfortunately, sometimes the right answer still is to remove the eye. And so if something is really big and I know that treating it is going to make the eye so sick that it's not going to have vision, if there's already really high pressure and pain in the eye, and I think that it's going to continue to be a painful eye that needs lots of treatment just to retain an eye that might not even cosmetically look nice, then sometimes eye removal with a one-time surgery is the best thing to do. And we're going to come back to these eyes because these really, although I hate to remove an eye, have been a real blessing in terms of contributing to what we're doing in laboratory research. So moving forward, how do we predict the risk of metastatic disease in patients? There are a lot of different tools that we can use to predict who's most at risk for cancer spread. And cancer spread and eye melanoma can happen regardless of whether we've correctly and safely treated the tumor in the eye, and even if the eye tumor is still well controlled. So size is an important way to predict prognosis. And many people argued for a while that because we have all these new molecular techniques, size maybe isn't as important as it used to be, but really it still matters. Uh, there are some instances, if you have a really small tumor, it's really hard to get an adequate biopsy sample for some of these molecular tests. You know that depending on where the tumor is, there's risks of bleeding anytime you're doing a biopsy. And sometimes you can cause vision loss from the biopsy itself. And in some places, there may be a cost associated with biopsy or in developing countries, they may not even have access to these types of tests. So you want to understand how size is important. Something like this, a really small tumor that's in the center of vision might not be something we would love to biopsy due to vision loss risk and hard, hard ability to get enough tissue from something that's pretty flat. And something like this would be easy to biopsy, but just by looking at these, something you can see at a bird's eye view that that's that large is probably going to have a higher risk of cancer spread than something that's really small. And in the past, the Shields group in Philadelphia has shown this really millimeter by millimeter, the thicker a tumor is, the higher the chance of spread. And we know location also matters. So iris melanoma, most of these actually fall into a small tumor category and they tend to be overall pretty low risk of spread. But where we get into the back of the eye, the ciliary body and the choroidal melanomas, these tend to be higher risk of spread, and it really is a big difference depending on how thick the tumor is. So you see a 
big change in the 10-year risk of metastasis from around 12% to 25% to almost half of patients if the tumor is large in size. And you can see that graphically here from small to medium to large, the large tumors really do much worse in terms of cancer spread. We can also use things like the AJCC staging. So we look at T category. T category is solely based on thickness and width of the tumor. And the greater T category, the higher chance of cancer spread. You can see it graphically at three years and five years, those lines continue to drift further apart from one another. So bigger tumors, higher risk. And then we can be even more detailed. We can factor in things like ciliary body location or is the tumor eroding through the wall of the eye and then we can come up with our AJCC stage. And we know stage four are those patients who already have metastatic disease, cancer spread, but we can look at stage one, two, and three. And again, the higher the stage, the higher risk that ultimately we're gonna progress to metastasis. So size is important, but there are other molecular things now that we can factor in as well. So one of these came out of the Cancer Genome Atlas, and this is a really fantastic, very detailed, highly scientific paper in cancer cell. Um, and it wasn't necessarily meant to be a prognostic paper, but Martine Yeager really did a nice job of describing how the Cancer Genome Atlas stratifies into these A, B, C, and D groups that are based primarily on chromosomes three and eight. So as we do things like lose a copy of chromosome three or gain more copies of chromosome eight Q, then we get higher risk of metastatic disease. And we showed when I was in fellowship in Philadelphia that you can do this tiny fine needle aspiration biopsy and evaluate chromosomes group into that ABCD. And you can predict whether patients are at higher risk for metastasis. And we actually also showed that compared to size alone, that AJCC category alone, we can use these molecular features from TCGA and we have higher accuracy of predicting metastatic risk. So the molecular information versus size molecular information is a little bit better. What I use in my practice now, I use gene expression profiling. This is um, from the Castle Biosciences group from Bill Harbor. And this is a really well-validated scientific test. This is going to divide into class 1A, class 1B, and class 2. And this is an RNA-based test, so it needs a really, really tiny amount of material, which means that I can use a teeny, teeny, tiny needle to suction out a very small amount of tissue, sometimes so small that you can hardly see it and they can still give me an answer. They're looking at 15 different genes and they can give us then this printout that looks like this. This is really what I hope to never see. This is a class two result. You can see at the bottom, class 1A, class 1B, class two, that if you're a class 1A, you might only have 2% risk of metastasis at five years versus a class two, we increase to 72% chance of metastasis. So it's really a big, big difference. Um, they've also added PRAME status to this and PRAME positive is another unfavorable prognostic marker. So we like to see rather PRAME negative tumors. Now, when I counsel patients, I really don't lean on gene expression profiling alone. I wanna talk about an integrated approach to prognosis here. So I, what this means is that I'm taking the genetic information, but I'm also pairing that with tumor size. 
And we've come up with this sort of magic number of 12 millimeters diameter, so 12 millimeters wide. If you have a tumor that's smaller than 12 millimeters wide, even if that molecular test says class two doom and gloom, bad information, it's actually not nearly that 72% that that test result says. So things that are less than 12 millimeters, even with bad molecular features, have much, much, much lower risk of cancer spread. So anytime I'm talking to a patient who has a smaller tumor, I always make sure to emphasize that point when we're making a decision about whether or not we want to get the biopsy and when we're interpreting what that test really means for them. And this has been shown several times now, this 12 millimeter number and the fact that you can put size and molecular features together and really together you get the most precise prognostication for your patients. And there are even online tools now, this premium tool that you can plug in different patient and tumor features, and then it gives you the option to add in molecular information, and it gives you a very personalized risk. And same thing with this Lumpo tool, you have the option to do patient and tumor information, and then add in these chromosomal markers to give you a personalized risk prediction. So prognosis matters. Why does it matter? It's not just to make us feel good or bad about what the future might hold, but for a patient who's high risk, the guidelines are going to recommend that we screen their lungs and liver more often about every three months in the beginning, as opposed to someone who's lower risk, I'm going to feel much more comfortable stretching them out more quickly toward a once a year screening. It also matters because there are clinical trials now, and someday we might have something FDA approved to try to use medicine for high risk patients that reduce the risk that we're going to end up with metastatic disease someday. And so prognosis, especially for large tumors where that 72% really rings true is really important. So no matter what I do for the eye, the prognosis remains the prognosis. The best thing I can do for a patient is catching their melanoma early when it's small so that they have lower risk of metastatic disease, but really a desire to change the fate, so to speak, of the patients who are in this high-risk group is what has spurred me into laboratory research. And so I want to move in and just briefly recap. So we've talked about uveal melanoma, how it's the most common primary intraocular malignancy in adults. So in our field, this is important. And even though I'm going to treat the eye, up to 50% of patients could still develop metastatic disease. So with that, the worst part is that when we do develop metastatic disease, we don't have great treatments. And we were so excited this year to get our, or last year now, to get our first FDA approved treatment for metastatic uveal melanoma. But there is so much road to travel yet so that we can do better for our patients. And so we really have a desperate need for translational research and novel treatments to improve survival. So what I've tried to do in my lab is to establish what I call the living library of uveal melanoma. And we've started with primary uveal melanoma and we're growing something called organoids. And so when I set up my practice, I had learned from some really fantastic researchers in other fields that what you start doing on day one is really going to make a huge impact, maybe not a year from now or two years from now, but 10 years from now, if you've started collecting data and you started learning from the first day of your practice, then you're going to have this gold mine of information that can really make a big difference. 
So anytime I meet a patient in my practice, I always ask if they're willing to have their information in this prospective database. And so I keep track of things like tumor size and how old a patient is and what kind of treatment they've gotten and if they've developed metastatic disease along the way and how we've managed that. And I keep track of that updated every time I'm seeing a patient in my office. And then when I have patients who need to go to the operating room or who are getting a blood draw, we're actually able to use some of that information in our lab. So we come back now to those large tumors. And of course, I really hate to have to remove an eye. I would love to save everybody's eye. But when eye removal is the right answer, these tumors are able to contribute and actually grow and live on in our lab for drug testing. So when I first started, I didn't know anything about organoids. And I thought, you know, I'd really just like to keep these tumors alive in our lab. So I started with two-dimensional cell culture, just growing teeny tiny cells on a flat tissue culture plastic sheet. Um, and you can see here, we have this nice dense population of uveal melanoma cells. You know, in the real world, I would never like to see a happy uveal melanoma cell, but in the lab, we like to keep them around so we can use them to learn. And we can treat these on 2D tissue culture plastic with medications. This is actually treated with a MEK inhibitor called tremetinib, which we know does not do a great job for our patients. But you can see here, it made the cells reasonably unhappy. And then over here, if we add some things to the MEK inhibitors, we make the cells really, really unhappy. So we do have some sort of indication of what things work and don't work, but judging from this middle row here, where we treated with a drug that we know is not great in people, but we see this response in cells, you can get the idea that two-dimensional cell culture doesn't always accurately represent what's happening in a patient. So it's not necessarily the very best model to try to figure out what the next best treatment is going to be for this disease. So I was really lucky to meet a fantastic pancreatic cancer researcher, Dr. Martin Fernandez-Zapico, who does organoids of pancreatic cancer in his lab. And he was kind enough to mentor me and teach our lab how to grow organoids of uveal melanoma. And these really bridge the gap between those flat 2D cell culture and animal models. Um, so these are three-dimensional tiny tumors that actually form a whole structure just like a tumor would in the eye. And they much more closely resemble how tumor or cancer behaves in a patient than that two-dimensional cell culture picture. And then compared to animal models, these are much more affordable. Um, some people might feel more ethical about using these and you can grow them more quickly and you can put them in teeny tiny wells and test lots and lots of drugs very quickly. So this is a really fantastic platform to try to figure out what to do for this cancer. And I just wanna teach you a little bit about how we were able to do this in the lab, because I think it's really pretty interesting. So um, this is an eye that had to be removed. And you can see we're doing a technique called transillumination here. So you can see how the eyeball really lights up through the white of the eye, that light shines nice and brightly. And then where we actually have the cancer, the melanoma creates this dark shadow and so we know exactly where the tumor is. This is exactly what I do when I'm treating someone with plaque radiation or when I'm putting on fiducial markers for proton or gamma knife. I use this with the eyeball still in place to find the tumor. 
And so since I started at Mayo, I've been recruiting patients who have to have eye removal to then donate some of their tissue to our lab. Anytime an eye is removed, we're taking fluid from the eye. So we're taking aqueous, the fluid in the front of the eye, vitreous, the fluid in the back of the eye, and then a sample of tumor tissue. And I think one of the big keys to our success with growing these tumors is that we do this right away um, within 30 minutes of when the eye comes out. So I'm there in the operating room, removing the eye, and then right away, we're getting our sample to our lab. The people from the lab are actually right there with me. And so we flash freeze those fluids so we can save them for molecular analysis in the future. And then with the tumor itself, again, just what I would do if I were putting a plaque on an eye, I'm marking out the tumor using that transillumination technique. So I know exactly where it is. And now that I know exactly where it is, I can use a needle, a much larger needle than I would use for a biopsy if we were doing testing for a prognostication. And I can suction out a sample that we're then able to grow in the lab. And so we suction it out, we put it in some fluid that keeps the cells happy. And then we do something called tumor cell isolation and we dissociate, meaning we break up clumps of fibrous tissue so that we're really gonna be able to grow tumor. And then we're gonna plate them out um, into these little wells. So um, if you think of just a circular well and we make this substance um, called Coltrex and it's almost like jello, um, like clear jello that probably doesn't taste very nice, but it looks exactly like that. And then you plate these cells onto the Coltrex and they grow up into a three-dimensional structure. And along the way you're feeding them. So we're giving them sugars and other growth factors to keep them alive. And this is the schematic generally of what we do. So we're taking that tissue, then we're breaking apart the clumps and then we're letting them grow as three-dimensional tiny tumors. And from these same patients, we're saving things like blood. We're doing some genetic analysis of the tumor, both from the eye itself that we did for clinical purposes, and then also in the organoid in the lab. And then we can take special types of pictures and do stains on these and also do drug studies. So, so far uh, we've made 19 different tiny tumors. So we've tried uh, 20 times to make organoids and have been pretty successful. And we've taken these from a wide variety of different pathology stage tumors and different cell types. So we have spindle mixed epithelioid. Generally, we think spindle tumors are lower grade, epithelioid are higher grade, more aggressive. We have a variety of things like BAP1 protein expression. When we lose BAP1 protein expression, we think that's a more aggressive tumor. And we've been able to show that these features from the primary tumor that we sent to the pathology lab still match the organoid that we're growing in our lab. So we're retaining those unique tumor characteristics as we're building this library. And you can see here, these are some of our very first organoids. And so you can see how they grow into this little 3D mass. And then these melanin stains and the BAP1 stains um, look just like they looked on the eyeball that we sent to pathology. We also have different molecular phenotypes in here. So as I said, I use that gene expression profiling test pretty regularly in my practice. And so we have tumors coming from class 1B and class 2 and from prime positive and prime negative tumors. And we also know some things about the sequencing. So some of these have certain mutations like GNAQ or GNA11. 
And we're able to now show that we've got some sequencing data on our organoids that our organoids also, again, keep those same mutations that we found in the primary tumor that we sent to pathology. These tumors, just like tumors in an eye, all have their own personality. So when we're looking at these different cell types, the spindle cell types, you can see they have a lot of little branches coming off of them. They sort of almost grow arms. When we have mixed cells, we have a mixed cell population here. You have some round tumors, tumor cells, and then you have some that have the little arms like the spindle cell. And the epithelial ones really are lots of little round balls. And that's just what we're seeing under the microscope. And they continue to grow and retain their own personality. They all move at their own pace. They like to eat sometimes slightly different things. And so it's it's been a very interesting experience just learning how unique these tumors are. And over time, the longer we leave them in culture, the longer they're growing in that little dish, they form these bigger clusters and they tend to get more deeply pigmented over time as well. So these are just some really interesting features that we're learning how to correlate clinically and what does this mean for our patients. And you can see this is just a, a variety now of different tumors. And you can see how they all do their own kind of cool nifty things. And, and these probably mean something in terms of risks of cancer spread or what molecular features or what adhesion factors and are in these tumors and how likely are they to travel through the bloodstream. So we're sort of just at the tip of the iceberg of learning how all of these things translate into clinical meaning. And the cool thing about these is just like we're sending an eye with a tumor in it to the pathology lab and they're doing special stains and, and slicing tiny slides of that tumor to analyze, we can do the same thing with these 3D organoids. So we can put these on a slide and we can slice them and then we can stain them with special things like this. These are fluorescent stains that can actually teach us about the presence of different markers. And because this is not in clinical land, we can test a lot of other higher level scientific experimental things like how does the DNA fold and how does that folding predict interaction with certain proteins and how can that translate to tumor behavior. So I'm really excited with everything that we've done here so far and what I'm most excited for is is to actually use these for drug testing and try to use those molecular features that we know are unique for every tumor and see how does that predict drug response. And so what we can do, because these are organoids and, and not animal models, we can put these in these really teeny tiny wells like this, and then we can rapidly drug test. And so the goal would be if we can bin these into a few different molecular phenotypes, just like we've binned things for prognostication, we can bin them into drug response molecular phenotypes and say, okay, you were high risk. And in that high risk category, you fit into this group that responds to this drug. And that's what we're going to give you to treat or prevent your metastatic disease. Um, and we've just ordered a big panel of drugs from the National Cancer Institute that we're going to be able to test and see how our subtypes predict treatment response. So, you know, we've talked a lot today, but again, this is just such important work, I believe, because even though we're a small field, uveal melanoma is the most common eye cancer that we deal with. And we have these awesome tests to predict prognosis, 
but there's not enough that we can do to change that prognosis yet. So with this living library, I'm going to continue to grow this and I'm going to continue to characterize these, not just at a sequencing level, but also at an epigenetic level so that we can learn about potentially other drug targets that haven't been tested in this disease before. And ultimately, rather than just having this gene expression profiling test that tells you whether you're low risk or high risk for metastatic disease, we can add to that test and also say, if you're high risk, this is the drug that you need to prevent metastasis. This is the drug that we're gonna treat you with if you ever get metastatic disease. And this is really gonna be the start of personalized or precision medicine for uveal melanoma. And I do think this is going to become a reality in my career. And I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't give a huge shout out to the people in my lab, David, Cindy, and Sam are fantastic. Um, they work really, really hard all the time, five days a week, so that I can spend a lot of time in clinic in the operating room with my patients. Um, and they've just been instrumental in keeping this work going. So thank you so much again for having me. It's been a real pleasure. And I'd love to talk about any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Dalvin. This was fantastic. It was, it was so fascinating to me. Um, and I hope that this has been fascinating to everybody else in our audience. Um, I think, like you said, this precision medicine and this idea that, that we can, um, be more precise and not just have like, a, like you said, that 2D dimensional um, slide that shows, you know, this is the drug that it responded to. And it's like, well, but it didn't really do that well on the slide. Like we need to see it while it's alive, not while it's dead. Um, and so just, just that idea of keeping it alive. Um, I do have some questions for you. And then as we, as we get going, um, we have about 15 minutes left. So for those of you in the audience, if you have questions, please put those in the comments on Facebook. I'll check over on the Facebook page and I will pull those over. And then if you have specific questions about um, anything, you can punch it into the Q&A here live on the webinar, or you can drop it in the message um, section and it'll go to the webinar chat. So I have a couple questions myself as we wait for some of those questions to come in. So my first question is when you have these organoids that you grow and you're using them, right? You're testing them, you're analyzing them. Um, every time you say make a slice or like take an analysis sample, um, does that affect the organoids ability to continue to grow or is it basically alive forever as long as you feed it? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great, great question. So they all sort of have their, their different personalities. And some of these really grow, 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 no matter what. Other ones, we have to baby a little bit more. So there are lots of different growth factors that you can give in culture. And as you think about it, that choroid blood vessel layer in our eye where these tumors tend to grow is one of the highest blood flow turnover areas in our whole body. So it's not surprising that these things need a lot of help to grow along. So what we do when we're testing drugs is we actually have a stockpile of these saved up. So anytime we're splitting them or we're taking some to use for a particular test, we're also saving some and putting them in a freezer. And so they stay um, kind of in cryopreservation essentially, and we can bring them back to life from the freezer. So our goal is to never run out of a particular organoid. Okay. So you said you made 19 organoids, but then are there like multiple copies of each of those 19 then? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So they have little clones. They're like their they own little do. clone army. <laughs> okay. Um, this is kind of a, an inch, I don't know, just kind of, you mentioned that you're feeding these, that you're like, you're feeding them um, growth factors and you're focusing on that. I, I'm assuming you document what growth factors 
like tumor A, B, and C respond to versus D, F, E, and F. Uh, but have you guys been able to um, open up an area of research that would indicate uh, post-diagnosis nutrition for patients? Like, okay, these are the things that feed your tumor. So let's eliminate those from your regular nutrition to hopefully stop feeding the cancer in the rest of your body if it's going to try to make a home. Um, has that ever been framed as an option or been researched? That's fascinating. I don't, I don't think that there's really work being done on that yet, but certainly every time that we're feeding, uh, feeding a tumor, something new, and it starts growing again, we're keeping track of that. So that's actually a really, really interesting idea. Well, cause I mean, if it makes the tumor grow in the organoid or if it makes the tumor grow in the eye, it would, I guess in my brain, logically, it would make sense that, you know, if you feed a tumor sugar or, you know, whatever it is you're feeding it, and that makes it grow that then you could translate that to, okay, well, if you as a patient eat, <laughs> eat that sugar, you are potentially going to be feeding any of those cancer cells in your body. Not, not that sugar is always the culprit, because like you said, the growth factors are going to be different for different organoids. And anyway, that was just, I'm just really into the nutrition side of things myself. And so I've, I just, am always curious, like, okay, is anybody doing this? Cause I feel like that's definitely a sphere that I hope gets researched soon. Um, because I do think, like you said, they're, they're picky. Some of them eat different things. And if we can figure out what they eat, then maybe we can stop feeding them as well. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And I, my patients ask me things like that all the time. And the fact is we just don't know, mm -hmm. but you're absolutely right. This could be a, a very interesting avenue to look into that. Okay. Um, I think we have a couple of questions that have come in. So I'm going to pull from those. Um, Okay. Is research, is this research being shared with UCLA and other treatment facilities? Yeah, it's a great question. So at this point, these are growing um, really primarily in our lab, but we've been in talks um, with some other groups to create a bigger um, prospective database. So um, yeah, Justin Mosier and, and Melody from Kieran Sight have been talking about sort of pooling research and doing this big multi-institutional database where we collect clinical information, we have patient input information, and we also grow some organoids. So um, um, Justin Mosier is a medical oncologist in Arizona. He and I actually did our <laughs> intern mine. year. Yeah, we did our intern year together at um, Mayo Clinic way back when. So he and I are great friends. And he has been growing some metastatic tumors in his laboratory. So we're both really interested in pulling our resources and collaborating because this is such a rare disease overall that I think most of us believe that doing things together is really the best way forward. Okay, sorry. I like went to go and check for the Facebook and we're seeing a couple questions and I was like, oh, look, you're talking again in the other spot, but it's fine. Um, well, this is just a thank you from someone who just says, thank you. This is so fantastic. Thanks for your work and your dedication to finding a cure for ocular melanoma. So just thank you again, Dr. Dalvin. Um, so I do see, huh, can I find it? There we go. I came back. Um, so this is a question from someone who says, what if you are someone who had no molecular information and you already had radiation therapy, um, is there, is there any data to support, you know, potential adjuvant therapies, or is there anything that, you know, you as a practitioner do for those patients who maybe a biopsy wasn't possible due to the location or um, those kinds of situations? Cause they know that that maybe isn't as common anymore, but it does still happen for patients where they can't get a biopsy or their doctor is too scared to biopsy um, for various different risk factors. Yeah, it, it absolutely still happens. And really that's why I wanted to highlight 
um, one for one house size is still definitely important. So when I don't have molecular information, how often I screen a patient depends on what the size of their tumor was. If it was a large tumor, I'm going to treat them a little more like they could be high risk. If it was a small tumor, then I know it maybe didn't matter as much what that molecular information would have said. They're still not going to be at super high risk. So I think size is really a critical feature. Um, and there, there is some data on, you know, if there's enough material there potentially going back and doing some of these tests, even on not alive tissue, it is certainly not comparable to getting that information when your tumor is still alive. Um, but you can still get some insight potentially. Okay, that's good to know. Um, this question says, you mentioned animal models. So can the organoids be used in an animal model, like in the liver or the eye of an animal to test a type of treatment. Like I know that we have a, a newer treatment, I think from not, it's not Karis. It starts with a C. Oh dear. They have a chemo treatment for the eye now. And now I can't remember. <laughs> I know Aura, not a C. It's Aura yes, Biosciences. Aura, they it. have, um, they have the chemo treatment that's specifically for the eye for specific levels of tumors and sizes. Uh, but could the organoid then be, you know, I guess transplanted or given to, or fed to an animal model, um, if needed to test actual treatments like live treatments, or is the focus, the drug testing. Yeah, it, these things absolutely can be grown in animals. So they've done that a lot with um, just 2D cell culture or putting things directly from a patient into an animal model. Um, and sometimes animals actually are used even as an intermediary to immortalize, so to speak, um, cells or tumors that aren't growing as well in a dish. Um, but definitely you can put these in a liver, you can put these in the subretinal space, so to speak, and, and try to then treat and see drug response, say in a mouse, for example. Okay. Um, so this is a question that just says that we know that class 1A can have metastasis. So what are your thoughts on if you have kind of a, an outlier class 1A tumor that's large? Um, how, do you, how do you go about scanning a tumor like that? Um, I guess kind of how do you, you, you mentioned all of this information, this prognostic information that you take into account. What trumps what in that kind of situation as far as scanning protocol and adjuvant therapies, things like that? Yeah, it's, it's really a lot of putting things together. So a class 1A, even if it's large at this point in time, it's not going to be eligible for a clinical trial for adjuvant therapy. But if we had a really large tumor, and, and you may have noticed when I talked about our living library, because these are all from a nucleated eyes, we actually don't have class 1A yet in our database, because it's pretty unusual to have such a large tumor that's class 1A. If I had something that were of a nucleation size in class 1A, it really becomes a, a discussion on this is such an unusual situation. Could we have a sampling error? Because that's a possibility. These tumors okay. are not necessarily homogenous. There could be different parts of the tumor that might be high risk, and we might have happened to biopsy a low risk. Um, and given that, knowing the, the size is big, do we treat you more like an intermediary person? Do we screen you more like every six months initially because we're not confident? And then if we're talking also about class 1A, I definitely would take prime into account. If I had a prime positive class 1A that was large, I would be much more inclined to keep that closer for screening than a class 1A prime negative. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so if you had the opportunity, well, I guess this is, this is a I have two questions, but one of them is if you're looking, you know, as a potential nucleation patient, like 
I let's just, I'll use myself as an example. Um, my eye, I don't think would be relevant anymore because it's already been, I mean, it's a month out. It's not 30 minutes outside of the lab operating room where you can get a live culture. Um, but for someone who maybe like me, who they have an eye recurrence or who has so much eye pain, maybe they had a class one tumor and they have really low risk, but they do have a lot of eye pain that is maybe not as anticipated because of the size of their tumor, but they're looking to have their eye nucleated regardless. If you have an eye that's been treated, and that has either A, come back, so the eye has recurred, or B, has already been treated and looks to be dormant, is there anything that you can do in the organoid live library, I guess, with something like that, as far as the nucleated eyes, or have you not had the opportunity to try it? <laughs> no, that's a great question. So for things that have really been well treated that we're removing an eye because it's sick from radiation side effects, um, that we really can't grow something from because there's not live tumor, but we have grown sample from a post-irradiation tumor that recurred. Mm -hmm. And actually um, that has grown really well because it's probably the treatment resistant cells that stayed alive. So we're probably there selecting for really aggressive tumor and, and they're probably an interesting cell to study because of that. That's super interesting. Now it makes me wonder if I can call UCLA, is my tumor still alive? If so, <laughs> Can you send some to the Mayo Clinic? I know you don't you don't like to work together, but can I make you work together? Uh, I think that what <laughs> we, I'm what I'm hearing like, in the world is we like if to we work together. <laughs> Legal doesn't always like yeah, to work that's, together, that's but you're right. But we like to work together. Mm -hmm. Oh, goodness. Well, we got to get the legal to cooperate, right? Um, so I did miss an aspect of somebody's question. Um, so it said, you said that the first part of the question was, can the organoids be used in animal models? You said yes. Um, can you then uh, test, well, I guess th this, as far as the organoids go, can you use uh, an assessment of immunotherapy? So like, are those the type of, or some of the types of drugs that you guys can test or immuno, um, immunotherapy drugs? When we get into immunotherapy, we really would look at animal models. So we have some people here at Mayo Clinic who have done some mouse models specifically for testing immunotherapy type of targets. Um, you really need that whole body system so you can have an immune response that we gotcha. don't quite simulate in the organoid environment. So at that point, you know, when we're talking about doing things like a small molecule inhibitor drug combined with immunotherapy, then we are probably going to animal models so that we can get good tests on those. Gotcha. But it does sound like it's, it's potentially more accurate based on the, the information you guys are seeing in um, growing the organoids that the tumor itself stays more in line with its genetic makeup and all of its factors. Like it stays more consistent when it's grown in an organoid and then potentially the cells could be transferred to that animal model. Um, like yes, that it, it would, it would do a better job of, of growing accurately. Whoops. It broke up. Hold on. Come back. Zoom. Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. When you're dealing with it. Oh, that's okay. Go. Are you there? Yes, I'm there. I can, we oh. can hear you. You said that's exactly right. And then. There yep. we go. So yeah, when you grow things as, as 2d cells, what happens over a long period of time is you tend to get to the point where you're really just growing one cell. And it's really gotcha. the same cell that's many, many, many of them. When you're growing an organoid, the goal of the organoid is that you actually keep the different types of cells that made up a person's tumor so that it's not just one cell. It actually represents the whole body of cells that made that cancer. Okay. Um, 
So then I guess the last part of their question was if doing animal model immunotherapy testing, does an animal have to be immune suppressed to have successful immune testing? Or is that a question not really relevant? Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say an animal has to be immune suppressed, but they do have genetically modified animals when we're specifically trying to test certain types of immune targets. Um, So it's, it's really unique to the drug testing situation. No, that's interesting. Um, so speaking of the drug testing, you mentioned that the goal is to then, you know, do the drug testing on these organoids in various different, you know, test, uh, organoids, clones, I guess, <laughs> organoid clones, a through F, and we're testing drugs, a through F on all of those clones. Um, how then do you hope to see that information used by a patient who say ends up with metastatic spread? So what I hope is that then I can tell you, okay, organoid A responded to drug C and your tumor, based on these molecular tests we've done, we know it's going to fall into category A. So I'm going to give you drug C in real life versus this person too, your category tumor fell into molecular type D and that responded to drug F. So you're going to get drug F. So instead of playing around and saying, okay, well, we know that not everybody responds to this, but this is our first line therapy for everybody. Generically, we're going to say, okay, we actually know your molecular phenotype and this Mm -hmm. is the right drug for you. We have good evidence to say that, that this is the best chance of working. Oh, that's fantastic. I feel like that'll be really unique. Um, And like you said, may not affect everybody right now, but for the people up and coming for a nucleation, because that's their only option or because they have a recurrence or any of these kinds of different reasons, I hope um, they have the ability to hear about this and to send their eye for growth in the living library. Um, So speaking of that, how can someone, if they are looking to have a nucleation this year, or they found out they have to have their eye nucleated, how can they then um, be a part of this? and communicate with you guys over at the Mayo Clinic on how uh, they want to be a part of the living library? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, you know, we've really, like I said, we've grown these here and solely not because I don't want to grow them everywhere, but because I have the ability to physically be there and my lab can physically be there so we can do this very quickly. Um, But we absolutely talked about how can we bring this to other places. And if If you are somewhere and you're very interested in contributing, I would say talk to your doctor. Um, The great thing about our community being so small is that we tend to all know each other. Um, And I am very, very, very happy to collaborate with anybody. I think the bigger our research community is, the better we're gonna do for our patients. So if your doctor is interested, um, we have formulas for the things that we grow these things in, and we can certainly provide instructions and we can talk to them about ways to transfer things. There's, there's legal processes in place, like I alluded to. So there's things called material transfer agreements that we have to get when we're sending samples between institutions. So the legal powers that be have to let us do it. Um, But I think you know, myself and, and I'm sure my colleagues were all very happy to work together when we're allowed to. Oh, I love that. Okay. So basically if you're interested in doing this, talk to your doctor and tell them about this, maybe send them this, send them this podcast episode or this webinar link when it's done. Uh, and we can get the information out to them and then you guys can all 
communicate and figure out how it can all come together. Um, sounds like it would be a little bit of a process, but it, it also sounds to me like, I mean, I, I feel like if I had known about this ahead of time and thought of it in the midst of all of the trauma of I'm having my eye removed, I would have wanted to try to pursue something like this. But my only regret is I didn't think of it until now. It's, you know, in the middle of that kind of a thing, it's so hard, you know? So these, these kind of things, it's, it's on us, right? It's on us to try to think of the future and then be there to support you in that moment because these are stressful situations and it's it's so hard to think of anything, but oh my goodness, what's going to happen next for me? Yeah, no, that's that's so true. As the, as the patient, it is, it is very much a difficult place to be, whether it's the very first time you get diagnosed and you're learning about a nucleation or whatever therapy you're going to be having, um, just the initial diagnosis. So thank you for just recognizing that as a doctor to a patient. Um, that is, you're right. That's very true. Um, well, I don't see any other questions coming through on Facebook or in our Q and a. So is there anything else that you feel like you'd like to address as we close out? I don't think so. I'm just so appreciative of, of being here. Like I said, you know, you and, and my patients every day really inspire me. And you guys are the reason that I want to do this. You are the reason that I want to make this better. And, and hopefully someday, you know, we don't have to have all these bad news conversations. We can have, okay, this is happening, but we know what to do now and it's going to yeah. work. No, I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here, for offering such a hopeful avenue of research and for just sharing your enthusiasm. We're definitely grateful to have you. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to say goodbye guys. And this will be up on the recording uh, for the, the, I believe podcast. You'll be able to find it there. And then it'll also be up on our YouTube channel when we finish the recording. So thanks for joining us today and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, I believe podcast brought to you by castle biosciences Please be sure to subscribe, and if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe Podcast.